Good afternoon and welcome to the Center for Strategic International Studies. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm our Chief Communications Officer here at CSIS. I'm so glad to have all of you join us here today for this important and very timely discussion of North Korean markets and civil society. The event is part of, um, North Korea, of the North Korea Freedom Week, and we're happy to partner with um, Dr. Suzanne Schulte and the North Korea Freedom Coalition. Before we begin, though, I'd like to alert you to our podcast. If you don't know about our podcast, um, some of you who have been guests on our podcast are here. I see Ambassador Bob King. Um, our podcast is called The Impossible State. It's with, uh, I moderate it, but it, Victor Cha is really the star of the podcast. And we also have Mike Green and Sumi Terry and lots of special guests. And basically all we're doing is talking about North Korea and South Korea and all the issues that are going on with North Korea. So you can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts, um, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and even on the CSIS website. Um, I'd also like to tell you about, if you don't know, um, about our Beyond Parallel microsite. If you've seen some of the satellite imagery that CSIS has been putting out lately, the commercially available satellite imagery, which has shown what North Korea is doing, um, and this is Victor's team that's been pioneering this with um, our ideas lab here at CSIS. You've seen it in the media. Um, it originates on our Beyond Parallel website, and that's the best place to look for it. Um, we are um, thrilled to have this panel today. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce my colleague, uh, Amy Lair, who is going to convene the panel, and uh, we'll take it from there. Amy? Thanks so much. I'm the director of the Human Rights Initiative here at CSIS and was really thrilled that Victor asked me to moderate this panel because I think the topic is really interesting. When I think about North Korea, I really think about a very closed off society with very significant human rights problems. Um, and, and when I think about markets and labor in North Korea, I think about forced labor. So it's really interesting to have, I guess, a slightly different perspective. And I think the research that Victor and his team has done is really important. So quickly, many of you already know him, but we have Victor Cha here with us today, who's a senior advisor and Korea chair here at CSIS. He's also a professor of government at Georgetown University. Next to him, we have Olivia Inos. She's a policy analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, and great to have her. And then Andrew Yeo, who is an associate professor and director of Asian Studies at Catholic University of America here in Washington, and I know um, he focuses on civil society in North Korea and his studies. So in terms of the order of the day, we're going to start off with Victor giving a bit of a presentation. He unfortunately has to leave after a few minutes uh, for some medical reasons. So Victor will kick us off with just some background that will be really useful for the rest of the discussion. Then we'll have a facilitated discussion um, that hopefully will be relatively informal with the other panelists. And then hopefully we'll have a bit of time at the end for you all to ask some questions. So Victor, please. Um, great, thank you so much, Amy. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, let me first say that we're very happy, I'm very happy to um, share the stage with my colleague Amy Lair, but also uh, Alevi Anos and Andrew Yeo. Um, these are two uh, folks in Washington, D.C. that really are doing cutting edge work on human rights and human rights policy in North Korea, as well as academic work on human rights in North Korea. And I'm also happy to say that um, um, Olivia shares a Georgetown connection as well. She was a student in our graduate program many, many years ago. Um, so it actually shows you can graduate from Georgetown and get a job. <laughs> 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 
Um, I see a lot of familiar f faces in the audience and I'm glad that you were all able to come out today. Um, I apologize in advance, I do have to leave because of a, I have a medical emergency I need to tend to, so I'm going to offer some initial remarks on the work that we're doing and then I'm going to turn it over to Amy, Andrew, and Olivia um, to continue the discussion. <clears throat> um, so uh, um, as Andrew said, this is uh, North Korea um, Freedom Week. And um, there's a lot of discussion about human rights in town, uh, or there will be a lot of discussion about huma human rights in town. There hasn't been a lot of discussion about it on the policy side, um, as we've been engaged in some rather intense diplomacy uh, with North Korea. And it's unfortunate that there seems to be at least this perception of a zero-sum trade-off between talking about human rights and talking about denuclearization diplomacy. Uh, when in fact there shouldn't be a trade-off. Uh, in many ways, I don't think we can actually get to a denuclearization outcome uh, without the human rights issue being addressed, uh, both for political reasons, uh, but also for legal reasons that I'm sure um, the panel will talk about later. <clears throat> but what I wanted to um, show to you initially is some of the research that we're doing in CSIS um, on markets um, in North Korea, and I know that in the panel following our, Susanna has brought um, three actual actors uh, in the markets who can talk more specifically about the sort of things that they engaged in um, in the country. <clears throat> um, but the link between markets and uh, North Korean human rights for us is that um, markets are essentially allowing for the improvement of the human condition in North Korea in a very indigenous way. Um, this is not something that was imposed from the outside. Well, it was imposed from the outside only in the sense that markets grew out of uh, a famine in the country in the mid-1990s. Um, but what has emerged is um, really probably the most dynamic thing that is happening in North Korea today, and arguably, the most important variable for any sort of socioeconomic <laughs> change in the country is coming from this phenomenon of markets. Um, and so what I wanted to show initially was we, um, a little bit of some of the work we've been doing. So 436 <coughs> is um, not just a random number, but is an, it is a number that approximates the number of official markets in North Korea today, um, 436. <coughs> CSIS did a study where we have geolocated all 436 official markets in North Korea, um, as you can see on this map. Now, some of you may be familiar with that famous evening satellite imagery photo of East Asia at night, where um, you see everything around North Korea awash in light, and then there's a black hole in North Korea because there's no, you know, hardly any electricity or economic activity in the country. <clears throat> what is so interesting about markets is if it's almost the mirror image of that. I mean, if you look at this map um, and you look at the markets, it looks like a rash spreading across the country. That's an appropriate metaphor for today. <laughs> a rash that is sort of spreading across, uh, spreading across the country. Um, and um, if um, uh, and, and so what we have done with this data is we have um, geolocated all the markets and um, we have approximate estimates of the size of each market in terms of the number of stalls. Um, 
uh, obviously the name of the market, the size of the location of the market, the size of the market in terms of the approximate number of stalls, as well as an approximation of the amount of money that each market pays to the government, so the tax that the government imposes on, on the markets. Um, and, um, and the tax is important, and it's not an insubstantial number when you add it all up, because what it, it, it suggests is that it's very, it will be very difficult for the government to actually crack down or close the markets, because a stream of hard currency for the regime um, that is a substantial amount of money. It's not an insignificant amount of money. The other thing is that the, the, the estimates that we have are not, are only for the official markets. So there is, of course, the unofficial markets in North Korea, which are expansive. <coughs> Unfortunately, there's no reliable data on the, on the unofficial markets, but you can imagine that the, um, the, the income for the government in terms of that would be exponentially larger if we include, uh, if we include those markets. Um, so, again, this is the most important variable for change in North Korea today and is the most important thing that is happening in the country to improve the human condition. I mean, if we talk or define human rights um, as, um, obviously, as universal rights, but um, as in terms of the general improvement of the human condition in North Korea, this is a case where North Koreans are acting on their own for their own livelihood uh, largely out of markets they have generated through their own efforts, and they are improving their, human, uh, their, their own human condition. That's the first point. The second point is that um, these markets are also creating um, an um, independence of thinking among North Korean uh, citizens. The, um, um, some of the work that we have done shows that uh, North Korean citizens, and I'm sure um, the panel that will follow us will, will hear some of this, North Korean citizens are starting to act and think on their own uh, as, they, as they try to navigate their own livelihood in these markets. The other thing these markets do is they provide choices to the North Korean people that did not exist before when everything was entirely determined by the government. So for example, one of the other things that we've done with this study is um, we have sort of, so we've geolocated the railway stations uh, in all of these towns. And we assume that the train station is sort of the center of the town. Uh, and then we have measured uh, the distance from the center of the town, the, so the train station, to the markets that are within the area. Do we have that slide? So Marie's gonna, and I should, and uh, Marie Dumond, who's standing in the back, has been one of our um, key researchers who have been working on this markets project. So do we have that? Um, so, um, so what you're seeing here again is it tells you the size of the market. This is in the city of Shinoiju. Right, the, the, the markets are significantly large. <coughs> um, and we've also been able to get some views of North Koreans who operate in these markets uh, to tell us a little bit about what their life is like. 
Right. So this, uh, uh, this, can you freeze that or are you able to pause that? No. <laughs> so essentially that, what that map showed you is that, uh, so we measured the distance from the center of town, in this case Shinoiju, um, to the market uh, in terms of how long it would take to ride a bicycle to the market. And I think in the city of Shinoiju, from the town center, you could get to, I think it was four or five markets within a 30-minute bicycle ride. Right? Um, so what does that mean? That means uh, that people have choices now right, in terms of where they go to acquire certain goods. It also means that people can start to talk to each other about something other than what the government tells them to think. Uh, about prices, prices in different markets, about new goods in some markets versus others. Um, um, this, and this is the third point and final point I wanted to make, this is significant because it also suggests that when uh, society is um, uh, operating within these markets, making choices, talking to each other about things they find in the markets, um, it is creating a form of social organization that approximates the seeding of a civil society in North Korea um, that is operating outside of the government. Um, and if we look at, do we have the uh, AVINC? Uh, if we look at um, uh, the, and I don't know if we'll have sound for this. Will we have sound for this? We won't have sound. Okay, so you can just watch it. Um, that, that the views expressed by some of these people, um, these North Koreans, uh, show a significant difference from the way uh, the government at least uh, represents um, overall thought in the country. So. Okay, all right. So um, you'll have to wait for that. Maybe we'll be able to get it up later and then uh, they can watch it later. But um, we have a project called uh, AVINC, A View Inside of North Korea, where we have worked with um, different NGO groups to have conversations with um, uh, uh, North Koreans who are operating in these markets. Um, and it's, it's very interesting to see uh, and read about their views on not just issues about markets, but broader issues about politics and about life um, that really gives a sense of an independence of thinking now um, uh, among society. Again, almost entirely generated by, by the market. Um, so in many ways, um, and I, I'm sure we'll see this in the next panel, these most uh, pr predominantly women, right? Women are really the tip of the spear when it comes to entrepreneurship in North Korea. Uh, these women, are, are creating, uh, are they're seeding a civil society in North Korea today, um, which is the best thing for improving the human condition. Victor, thank you so much. Um, I know you may, do you need to run right now? Or can we stay for a, a question or two? I can stay for a couple Great, great. Um, well, Victor, when we were talking before this panel, one thing you said to me was that um, you know, one factor are the markets, but there were a few other factors that you also thought were sort of changing a little bit. The, it was like this constellation of issues, I think around maybe phones, transport. So can you talk us through that a little more and we'll see if any of the other panelists want to jump in on that? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, I, I think that sort of the, um, 
the, the two most significant things that we've seen in, in, on, on this regard have been, again, the, the growth of the markets, but, in all, but then also the growth of uh, cell phone technology in the country. Um, um, many of you here are familiar with the numbers, but there has been an explosion of cell phone technology in the country. Um, there are some issues with that in the sense that the government is now trying to control um, uh, the cell phone technology, but at the same time it allows uh, people to communicate, uh, citizens to communicate with each other through, uh, through texting. Again, providing another means of communica communication and connections that, uh, was, you know, was, that was really unheard of um, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. So when you combine the fact that these markets have been here now for what, a quarter of a century, 25, 20 or 25 years, plus the growth of cell phone technology, you are really beginning to um, give the tools uh, for people to, um, to connect with each other outside of you know, the sort of monolithic directives of the government. Um, and, and not necessarily because it's going to somehow spawn a, an Arab Spring. You know, I'm, certainly we're not making that argument. Um, but we are saying that in, on this topic of North Korea, all of us have given, given many talks around town and around the country where the, the picture is generally pretty dim when you talk about nuclear weapons or ballistic missiles. But this is like, this is, a, this is the most positive thing that's happening uh, in North Korea today. The ability to communicate and connect with each other um, through, uh, through cell phones um, and as well as uh, the markets. And then the third piece of it is of course the, the um, increasing um, proliferation of outside information into the country. Mm -hmm. um, this is um, uh, you know, widely sought out after inside the country in terms of information about the outside world. You know all the stories about South Korean soap operas being very popular in North Korea. Uh, but um, but this, is, this is again, I think, something that although it may be for entertainment value, it may be for pure entertainment value, if we look at it in the context of human rights and consider one of the worst human rights violations to be the government's control of information, the monopoly on information, um, this demand signal for information from the outside world is also a very positive indicator in terms of improving the human condition. Thanks, Victor. Olivia or Andrew, do you want to hop in on sort of this trend and what, you know, a, a few reflections on what you're seeing and what you think it means? Yeah, I mean, I think you can hardly talk about change in North Korea without making reference to the markets. And I think that one of the reasons why this is the case is because the markets themselves have had this incredible equalizing effect on society. And I'm not talking about equalizing in the sense that, you know, in North Korea, the government provides everything so people can have sort of equality of outcome, but it provides equality of opportunity to engage in the economic uh, sector in a way that's really unusual. And I think that the reason why this panel is highlighting women in particular is because the reason women are so active in the North Korean context is because once they are married, the North Korean government no longer requires them to report to their government-mandated place of work. And the fundamental assumption behind that is because, well, if you're married, you're going to have children and therefore you're going to take care of your house. But the women have really seized upon this opportunity as the potential to start their own enterprises and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot about that in the next panel. But I think it's incredible because that's so transformative not only in how women are relating to 
society and markets and their own lives, but also it's fundamentally changed their relationship to the government, which is the core relationship in North Korea between citizen and government. And so I think it's been really fascinating to watch that transformation take place. I, if I could just jump in, I think one of the things that we're seeing is this emergence of markets. We see uh, 436. So that's, that's a fact. We recognize there's a consensus that there is uh, the existence of markets, but the question is, what, does that, what implications does it have within North Korea for the state, for society? And um, I think the broader trend is, uh, are we, the question that we should be asking is, are we seeing change uh, inside North Korea? And I mean, Amy had mentioned that I, I've been doing some research on civil society in North Korea, and that's actually part of a broader, a, a larger project here at CSIS. On, it's titled Inside the Black Box of North Korea. It looks at domestic aspects uh, within North Korea. But uh, the question is really whether markets are empowering society and whether that's shifting the dynamics between state and society. And I'm happy to say more about that dynamic and that change, but I'll leave it at that for now. Yeah, well, kind of on that, on that note, when, when we look at the market report from, from CSIS that talks about civil society, what do we mean when we talk about civil society in North Korea? Because my guess is it looks a little different than maybe when we're talking about here in the US, for example. So I'll take that because I mentioned that I was doing some work on civil society. So if we ask up front, is there a civil society in North Korea? The quick answer would be no, but then you have to qualify that because it really depends on what your definition of civil society is. So uh, political scientists like to look at it as a realm of organized social, uh, social life that's volunteering, self-generating, and autonomous from the state. Oftentimes there's recognition that a civil society is uh, it's about acting collectively within the public sphere. Now that's very difficult to do in South, or excuse me, in North Korea. You can't just have people organizing and spontaneously uh, forming associations because uh, the North Korean state has a watchful eye. But that being said, um, there are there are North Koreans that that talk amongst one another. There are North Koreans that. Um, interact that maybe the state doesn't see what they're doing and that's where I think the role of markets becomes uh, becomes important because the markets are creating this dynamic where individuals have to trust uh, one another. If you're going to make a transaction you have to trust that the other person uh, if, if I have a good and I'm selling it to someone you have to trust that um, you're going to make that exchange and sometimes that happens the state there's state regulated markets but they're also black markets and in that case it's really between the two people and when you start building that network, um, you know, there's a term in uh, political science known as social capital. So it's the idea that um, there's exchange and reciprocity. And through that, you might, be a, you might be creating a new set of relations, one that's actually apart from the state. So going back to the question of, of a civil society in North Korea, I mean, from, based on a formal definition, the answer might be no. But that doesn't mean that uh, underneath, there aren't things that are happening on the ground where individuals are interacting with one, uh, one another. I think the real key is whether um, that uh, emerges up to the public sphere and whether the state will clamp down on that or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyone else want to jump in on that question? I'll just jump in a little bit. I think um, it's really helpful maybe at this point to conceive of what we're talking about because I think what's taking place in North Korea a lot of times will assign the term informal economy because North Korea itself doesn't always recognize it as legal that this would be considered a 
formal economy or a free market economic activity in any other context. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind when we talk about this, because it's slightly different from informal economy versus illicit economy, where you can also have a lot of negative side effects. And I think at some points they do sort of overlap. And it's sort of a, like where, what Andrew is getting at when he's talking about civil society. It's sort of civil society, it's sort of not sort of free market, it's sort of not. But I think that the reason why we would say that it is a free market, um, you know, functionally, is because it's introducing goods, it's introducing information, it's introducing ideas that weren't previously there, that people do have the opportunity to coalesce around and build various mechanisms for potentially change, but also potentially for just improving their own family's lifestyle. And I think that's important, even if it doesn't take on the formal civil society full spectrum that we think of, mm -hmm. because it still has incredible benefits. Yeah. And the, the last thing I'll add <laughs> is that um, I entirely agree with uh, everything that both of my colleagues have said. Um, uh, and, and I want to emphasize one other point that Olivia made at the very beginning is sort of the, the sort of equalizing factor of markets and market uh, at, on North Korean society. North Korea, as some, some of you may not, North, Korean, North Korea is you know, supposed to be a communist country where everybody's the same, but it is the mo one of the most stratified societies in the world today where your place in society is determined generations before you. Um, and what these markets have done, you know, by generating, by generating wealth, by generating disposable income, by generating um, goods that people can own, is that it, it is really sort of, I wouldn't say shattered, but it's shaken up this notion of a very sort of state stratified uh, society. And, and that, along with these, these um, um, organic indigenous transactions that are created in the market every day among people where they're defining their own rules, um, they're creating reputations, right? They're, they're creating the sort of social interaction that Andrew has been researching about and building social capital. I mean, these are all very important elements uh, for the creation of a civil society. And they're also all very important elements for the future when at some point in the future, if North Korea opens and um, uh, foreign companies, international financial institutions start coming in, the, the, the folks in North Korea that are going to be most familiar with the language of sort of market transactions are going to be uh, particularly these women um, who have been operating in these markets. I think it's really interesting. In a way, it sounds like we're talking about most of the enablers of, right? The enablers of civil society, the enablers of a more open society, potentially. But it sounds like it's early days. And so what do we think about the trajectory? Bye, Victor. Thank you so much. <laughs> is this something that we see continuing to expand? Is it this space, is it expanding in a meaningful way now? Or like, where do, do we have a sense of where this is going? Yeah. I mean, I think that we've now had several years of the market emerging inside of North Korea and we do have um, refugee or defector testimony of individuals who served in the markets like what we're going to hear here. I think one of the most interesting findings from that is that individuals are not only able to gain access to outside goods, like that means more advanced technology, radios for example, um, or even televisions that they can then trade on the market, but they're also gaining access to alternative forms of ideas. And this is risky for the average North Korean. I mean, to be caught watching a South Korean drama or to have a Bible or any sort of religious materials in their possession, they're taking a real risk but oftentimes the market is the means of getting that information in. And I think that there are even ways that other 
countries, other governments can think about using those openings in the market for good to promote those alternative ideas, not necessarily to promote fundamental change, but to give those individual North Koreans the ability to decide and think for themselves about what's going on beyond the 38th parallel. And I think that's really a critical component as the markets have developed, those individuals are taking advantage of that access. So Olivia's been talking about some of the information flows that uh, arise because of, because of these markets. I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit about the state and the relationship between state and society and what changes we might see moving forward. So with one of the, uh, one of the changes taking place is this weakness, the weakening of the public distribution system, if it even exists to this day. So in North Korea, in the past, North Korea signed rations to every uh, every citizen in North Korea based on your class on, on what type of work that you did. And that, that broke down since the, the period of the famines in the 1990s. But um, today no one can really rely on food from the state to, I mean, you, you just don't make enough money. You can't, you can't feed yourself, so you have to rely on the markets. And markets work so that the incentive structure is set up and that the more I put my time into the markets, the more I can make. So if I can give an example, let's say that your official state job is working in the mines. Um, if, if I'm a miner, I can work as hard as I want uh, for the state. I can put in as many hours, um, but my wage is gonna stay the same, and it's probably not even enough. But in the meantime, with the extra, whatever extra time I have, the more time I put into my market activity, let's say I have a garden plot and I decide to grow vegetables, and then uh, whatever excess vegetables I grow, I decide to sell on the markets. The more time I put into the markets, the more effort I put into markets, uh, the more money I'm going to make. And so the incentive structure is set up so that you don't want to work hard in, the, for, in your state job for the mines. You just want to make the bare minimums. You're going to shirk, you're going to slow down, and you're going to save your energies for the market. And if you multiply that by uh, you know, thousands, not millions, that's going to hollow out the formal economy. Mm -hmm. And so that means that you're having a, the state uses the economy, the public distribution system as a way of controlling uh, the North Korean people. But if that system is breaking down and you have the rise of markets, that's, uh, that does create uh, a, a bit of an unstable situation. And so for me, the question of what happens in the future is whether Kim Jong-un, whether the regime can actually uh, capture the markets. Can they co-opt the markets and control it and regulate it to prevent um, there's kind of ordinary North Koreans from, uh, from protesting. And if he, if he can do that successfully, then we might not see change uh, as quickly. But if he can't do that, uh, I think uh, we, we might begin seeing the trappings of civil society and some pressure uh, from below. And, it, and one last point, it has to do also with questions of legitimacy. If you've been told all your life that the regime provides for you, it's the state that gives you everything, yet you see clearly that's not the case. You're making your living, you're making your earnings. Uh, you know, these women who are working in the markets, they're relying on their own uh, kind of strength, their self-sufficiency to earn a living. So there's this gap then between what the state has been telling you and what you actually see. And again, that creates a, a type of discontent, uh, a split between what people are thinking privately and then what, you know, what you're professing publicly. So those are some changes that I think we might be seeing a longer term that might be uh, destabilizing for 
for this North Korean state. Yeah, I, you know, Andrew was asking a fundamental question about whether or not Kim Jong-un actually has the ability to even control this market growth. And I think the CSIS study, as well as my own research, demonstrates that they really have lost control at this point. I mean, I believe one of the statistics in the study is that 72% of people rely principally on the markets for their household income. And um, Andre Longkov, a North Korea watcher, has estimated that the informal markets and the formal markets may comprise somewhere between 30% and 50% of GDP growth inside of North Korea. So already those markets are making up a substantial component of the North Korean economy. It may not even be in Kim Jong-un's interest anymore to crack down on those markets. But my own research as well as um, there's a fantastic study by Sheena Chestnut-Greitens called Illicit from a few years back and it found that the North Korean regime was actually using the market growth to continue its own illicit activities mm -hmm. too. So we've been talking principally about a lot of the positive impacts of marketization, but we also have to be aware that there are unintended mm -hmm. consequences, um, including North Korea being able to use the market for mm -hmm. generating its revenue for itself. But I think we're at the point now where the economic growth from the markets clearly benefits the North Korean people, and Kim Jong-un's getting just enough benefits that he may not be willing to crack down on it. Um, any time in the near future. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I, I think that Victor mentioned to me is also helpful for price stabilization mm -hmm. of some basic goods sometimes to have mm -hmm. this alternative beyond just state control and state handing out of, of goods. Um, Olivia, I want to come back to something you said earlier. You, you talked a little bit about policy. I want to talk about policy. Mm. So we know there's a slight space, right, that at least is helping people have a slightly more dignified life and maybe a little bit more information and a bit more ability to have their own relationships and see the world differently. So how, from the outside, what can we do to support that that doesn't endanger it accidentally? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so a couple of different thoughts. Um, when I was at Georgetown, as Victor mentioned, um, my thesis that I wrote under his direction was looking at the conversion of institution of US sanctions and growth in the informal economy in North Korea. And my research seemed to find a positive correlation between the institution of both US um, unilateral sanctions, but also UN multilateral sanctions, and growth in that informal economy. Now, traditionally, we think of institution of sanctions as potentially harming people, having negative humanitarian consequences to those individuals. But in reality, many of the North Koreans seem to be developing coping mechanisms that involved that growth in the informal market. And this research should be continued. I should note that I, I did this research prior to the Trump administration's maximum pressure strategy being instituted. But what we would expect to see is a continued growth, which seems to be confirmed by the CSIS study, that the markets are in fact continuing to grow. If this is the case, then the US should seriously think about how it's using various grants, um, including the grants that are created through the North Korean Human Rights Act, which are so specifically supposed to fund um, improving information access in North Korea. And we should think about how we can use those openings in the market to specifically invest in perhaps new technologies, which is one of the uh, specifications in the North Korean Human Rights Act. Um, this could include, for example, um, Google had at one point suggested providing internet access through satellite imagery, and Victor mentioned that increasingly North Koreans have access to cell phones 
if you were able to hack into those networks, you wouldn't even need to be smuggling in USBs or other outside information. You could use the satellites to provide access to outside information in a really powerful way. One other idea I've heard floated is even to have Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime create specifically curated and culturally relevant content that you could then put into North Korea through the satellites or even through USBs or otherwise um, and sort of have the private sector getting involved in a really interesting way. But those grants already exist through the mm -hmm. North Korea Human Rights Act. We should be taking advantage of them and looking at them critically and seeing whether or not we can tie that with that expansion and potential growth that's happening as a consequence of the maximum pressure and change our, our line about it. Sanctions aren't just about closing societies or punishing bad actors, they actually might have the potential for opening up spaces for freedom in North Korea in particular. It's interesting, yeah, it sounds like your research was um, counterintuitive in yes. its findings. <laughs> Definitely. Really, really interesting. Was it, just a quick question, you found <clears throat> that an increase in sanctions actually led to more I think you described it as like illicit economical activities. <laughs> Does that include these, these more formal markets? Yeah, so okay. in my paper, I made a distinction between the informal market economy and the illicit economy. And the way that I did that was to make clear that whatever the international community would consider to be legal, we would consider legal regardless of what Kim Jong-un or the Kim regime thought it was. But I was looking specifically at how that market activity had opened up space, but also I mean, the negative consequences were Kim Jong-un can use the markets in order to, for example, launder money and counterfeit currency. Um, there's possibility for weapons trade, human trafficking, et cetera. But I mean, that's a negative consequence of any market. And I don't think that's a substantial enough harm that you wouldn't continue to encourage the market growth. You just have to find ways in US policy or other policies to mitigate those risks. Mm -hmm. And obviously we're using things like the Tariff Act here right. to try to crack down on forced labor in the North exactly. Korean labor force. Yeah. Andrew, thoughts on policy? Sure. I mean, I'll just uh, add on to what, I mean, I think Olivia did a great job outlining some of the policy aspects. But uh, there are things that we do that might not seem uh, so obvious that it's, it's you know, affecting uh, markets or it's helping improve the lives of North Koreans. But with some of these grants, I mean, one of the simplest things I've heard is that uh, the weather forecasts from radio broadcast, mm -hmm. broadcasts from outside are more reliable uh, from <laughs> places like uh, Radio Free Asia or other, other defector run broadcasts. And so if you want to run business, if you want to make transactions, actually knowing the weather can be quite important. And so uh, finding ways to fund these sort of uh, organizations that do broadcasts or organizations that help bring information to North Koreans, I think that could be helpful. And also just even being able to do um, the business to understand you know, how to set up um, a business enterprise, understanding how markets work, understand, you know, a capitalism 101 type course. If there's a way of, of training North Korean defectors and maybe somehow getting that information inside North Korea, that could help empower um, North Koreans themselves as well. So those might be some additional ways we might think about policy. And also, I think Suzanne runs free North Korea radio, which also helps to really get information into North Korea already. So there's, there are a lot of activities that are currently mm -hmm. being done to sort of seize upon those openings in the market that should continue to be encouraged. Mm -hmm. Great. And so what, what, what's next? What's next in terms of what, what should we be looking at from a research perspective? I mean, what, mm -hmm. what are the, you all have been looking at this for a while. Sure. We know the markets exist. It's exciting, it's an opportunity. You've offered some thoughts on policy, but what else do we need to know to understand this better? 
So a couple of things, because I, I mean, Victor had mentioned if we could talk a little bit more about Beyond Parallel, because I've been spending so much uh, effort on it. But um, my understanding is the map, they, they show where all the markets are based uh, at the level of province, the county, and then even at the local, local levels. But it'd be really interesting to find out whether um, there's some kind of correlation between where markets exist and the way you know, ordinary North Koreans think. There's a micro-survey that they've done, and they've picked out um, North Koreans in uh, every province to answer questions about, you know, what do you think about Kim Jong-un? You know, what do you think about um, whether change is taking place in North Korea? Questions about legitimacy. If there's any way to replicate that so that you can correlate and see whether the existence of markets really leads to different types of thinking about the government and, and about um, change. Um, one other thing that I think you know, everyone in this room might think about is you know, what, are, what are the models for change? And when I talk with other um, you know, political economists, other experts on North Korea, you know, they really point to one of, of two sorts of models. And so for me, I actually think a lot about Eastern Europe and East Germany in particular. And uh, there's uh, an argument, there's an, argu there's an article about the revolutions in East Germany in 1989. Now, North Korea and East Germany, they're not perfect parallels, but East the East Germans also had a, uh, a terrible, you know, it was the Stasi, the secret police. They had, in they had informants everywhere. It was pretty impressive. But yet in you know, 1989, everything kind of came tumbling down. And there's a study that looked at uh, you know, the preferences of individuals. And so everyone was fed up with communism. People were sick of, of the communist government, but um, they were afraid to speak out. But then when they, came, they would uh, have these protests on the square weekly, it was called the, it was in Leipzig. Every Monday they would have these protests and uh, start out with 20, and then it was 50, then it was 100, thousands, and then 10,000s. And uh, part of it was this idea that no one actually knew what other people were thinking. Like everyone was kind of fed up with the system, but as they saw other people coming out of the protest, it was like safety in numbers. And so I wonder if North Korea is in that situation where there are plenty of people that are fed up, um, but they're afraid to really speak out, so they don't know the extent of widespread discontent. Now the difference between North Korea and East Germany is that I think this control system at the top, the authoritarian control and the toolbox that the state has is pretty oppressive, so it makes it difficult. Um, but if you want to think about change, that might be one model. But then, uh, in contrast, when I talk with some other folks, they actually look at China or Vietnam as, as their model. They say, well, North Korea can have its cake and eat its too. They can have market change and transition, but they don't actually have to make very many significant political reforms. And so if, it's, if you're going to use China or Vietnam as, as your model for change in North Korea, then it might, uh, you know, then, then the story doesn't look as, um, as optimistic. But the question boils down to, you know, can we see change within North Korean society? Can we see improvement in the lives of ordinary North Koreans? And so that might be two approaches that talk about more of a quick sort of change and a long, longer drawn out sort of process. Great. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we definitely need more studies like the one from Beyond Parallel because one of the things I've noticed just in working in the North Korean human rights space is that there are a lot of, I mean, there are so many human rights challenges all across the globe. I don't work only on North Korea. 
But um, I find that a lot of times the North Korea human rights case doesn't get a lot of traction because we can't see pictures um, physically. And mapping out the markets in the way that CSIS did is really, it, it hits you, it feels real. There's a reason why we can recall the picture that Victor was highlighting of North Korea being completely in the dark and everything lit up because there's so few pictures that represent the horrible atrocities that are taking place there and that represent day-to-day -day life. And so I think that's one additional area of research. Um, a second one would be, as I said, to explore whether or not that maximum pressure strategy has resulted in an increase in growth in the informal economy. My research sort of went up until the Trump administration, but I think it would be great to do sort of follow-on research there. But then third and finally, I would say, you know, you need to highlight and give more opportunities to North Koreans to speak to their own experience because, again, that puts faces to the experiences that they've had in a way that I think has unfortunately been ignored mm -hmm. in, in many regards in the, in the North Korean context. Right. If, oh, even if I can jump in, um, so Olivia and I, and also Victor in some extent, we're looking at this in terms of broad trends from a macro perspective, but it's actually the, the North Korean defectors themselves, the women within North Korea who actually have the knowledge and experience at the very micro level about how, you know, how the markets function and how change may actually take place. So I think certainly uh, moving forward, uh, hearing more voices from defectors, especially uh, those who have uh, worked in, uh, with markets extensively, I think would be very important. I think it's always sort of in, in the human rights realm really powerful to hear from people themselves and their experiences rather than sort of look at statistics that can be a bit numbing sometimes. <laughs> Um, well, I'm going to take the moderators, um, you know, use my power here to ask you a broader question, which is, when we think broadly about human rights, about policy and U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis North Korea, why should human rights be part of that equation, an important part of it? Sh should they be? Yeah. Um, I'm happy to address that. So I had the chance to travel to both Singapore and Hanoi during the summits, and Heritage specifically sent me there to do media because they believed that the human rights aspects would largely be absent from the conversation, but that it would be a shame if that was in fact the case. And so um, I wrote a couple of papers prior to the Singapore summit and then also one after, right before a Hanoi summit. And it really highlighted that there are strategic ways to think about how human rights fit into this broader national security question. And I think that it's almost impossible to address the nuclear and the missile issue apart from addressing the human rights issue because Kim Jong-un uses the threat, for example, of sending three generations to a political prison camp in order to keep the people silent. And some of CSIS's research has actually found that when they've interviewed um, something like 50-odd North Korean refugees, they don't see the nuclear and missile program as a point of pride. And so if those North Korean people actually had a voice, there's a chance that the North Korean government might not be able to continue down the path they do. And so I think there's a really important role for human rights to play in this. But beyond this, the North Korean regime actually profits directly from these human rights abuses. Uh, forced labor inside those political prison camps is free labor for the North Korean regime. There are even um, allegedly examples of individuals who have had chemical and biological weapons even tested on them. And they may even play a role in the development of those programs that, you know, because they are forced to do so. And the forced laborers abroad are also a significant source of profit for the North Korean regime. And so if we're really looking to put maximum pressure 
you can't really address or put maximum pressure if you don't address the sources of profit that are stemming directly from the regime's abuses themselves. So I think human rights has to be a part of the conversation. I don't even think there should be a question. But for some reason, diplomats love to say that if you raise human rights issues, it's going to derail the negotiations. But I've yet to hear of it actually being raised and negotiations being derailed. So I don't know. I, I would really press people to raise those practical examples and explain how. Thanks, Olivia. Andrew, do you want to come in on that? Sure. If, if Kim Jong-un really wants something, even if you raise no human rights, he's still going to come to the negotiating table. And I think we've seen that before. Uh, we've seen that happen. You know, Trump was pretty critical in 2017, but that didn't stop Kim Jong-un from coming uh, to Singapore and then Hanoi. Um, and, you know, the, we, we hear a lot about you know, establishing a peace regime, but it's, it's really hard for me to see how you can have a peace regime if you're not addressing human rights, uh, if there are people that are being oppressed. So that has to be a part of the equation. Um, and then just tying it back into uh, just work on the markets and why markets relates to human rights. I mean, I think we, we've seen that the regime is very recalcitrant. They're very, uh, th you know, they have obvious interests for not uh, making political improvements. They've made some changes on the margin. Um, they might have signed uh, certain documents, but that change is very slow. And so some ways the market, and we call it a bottom-up marketization. In some ways, that's this, maybe that's the same way that human rights has to change as well, uh, too. So um, if you think about uh, markets, because of markets, people now need to move around. So there's, I wouldn't say there's freedom of movement, but you can bribe border guards to go from one place to, to another. <laughs> right, or in terms of even improving your livelihood, you're doing it because of the markets. And so the state, they're kind of living out this duality where they realize that people are not you know, obeying the law, that there's bribery and corruption that's in place. But at some point, maybe the, the legal measures will adopt or change to fit with what's actually happening in reality so that maybe a freedom of movement will be more um, more flexible, at least in terms of North Korean law. So that's one way where maybe the markets might lead and, and pro, I should say maybe prod the state to make uh, changes uh, related to North Korean human rights. Really interesting. I think we're out of time and I know we're gonna have a really fantastic panel right after this. So I just really wanna thank Olivia and Andrew for their time, that was really great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. My left, she was born and raised in Busan she worked as a teacher before she defected. In order to survive the arduous march, she started her own business buying products from a wholesale market in Chongjin. But she found that she could make a lot more money if she got involved in selling diesel, got involved in the diesel oil business. So she became involved in that business. Uh, Hyo Jo Hee was a trained crane operator at a steel company in North Korea before she defected. But during the Artie Smart, she could hardly make enough income from her work, so she had to find a way to survive. She had got involved in purchasing cigarettes from merchants and then selling them. So she was in the luxury goods trade. Um, our third witness is Kim Ji Young, and she has a little different story. Kim Ji Young was a daughter of Korean Worker Party officials. So she was actually uh, in the high up in North Korean society, and she attended the very prestigious Kim Il-sung University. She's going to give you the perspective of what it was like for people actually high up in the regime, and how, why did she go from being a member of the high, upper class in North, North Korea, high up on the Sungbun classification, why would she end up become, becoming a free marketer? So she's going to tell her story. So I'm going to go ahead and you're up. Let's see. <clears throat>
음, 1990년 초부터 시작되었던 북한의 미 공급은 1994년 김일성이 죽고 나서 절정으로 치닫게 되었습니다. Uh, public distributed system started to break down from early 1990s and completely collapsed after Kim Il-sung uh, died in 1994. 직장에서 배급표를 받아 배급소에서 이제 쌀을 받아서 그 쌀로 생계를 유지해야 했던 사람들은 어느 날 갑자기 소태에 넣을 한 줌의 쌀이 없어서 맹물 한 사발을 들이키면서 굶어야 했고 그래도 직장을 안 나가면 안 되겠기에 줄임배를 움켜쥐고 출근을 해야 했습니다. Ordinary citizens who relied on ration and rice provided by their workplaces suddenly found themselves having nothing to eat but water. But, and, and although they were starving, they still had to go to work every day. 그나마 결혼을 한 여성들은 직장이 없이 집에서 쉬어도 국가에서 허락했지만 남성들은 기혼자든 미혼자든 직장 생활을 필수로 해야 했던 당국의 방침이 있습니다. Married women were allowed to stay home. Nonetheless, all men, whether they are married or single, were ordered by the regime to go to the work every day. 고난의 행군이 시작되면서 나라에서 배급을 안 줘도 돈을 안 줘도 남성들은 출근을 해야 했고 대신 집에 있던 여성들이 밖으로 나가 생계 유지를 위한 돈을 벌기 시작하였습니다. As the arduous march started, people were not paid from their jobs, but still all men had to go to work, which naturally led women to go out to the market and earn money to make a living. 제가 맨 처음 장마당을 경험하게 된 것은 북한의 고난의 행군이 절정에 다다르고 사람들이 굶어 죽고 실종되고 탈북을 하던 1996년 여름이었습니다. The first time I've ever experienced the market was back in uh, the summer of 1996, uh, freshly, uh, freshly out of high school, I had my first job and began to realize that the supremacy of so socialism, which I learned from the school, was totally uh, alienated from the reality. 먹을 것이 없어 굶어 죽고 있던 사람들은 한 줌의 옥수수를 위해서 집안에 있는 집기들과 장롱, 옷까지, 심지어 숟가락, 젓가락 등팔수 있는 모든 것을 모든 것을 들고 나와 길옆 공터에서 옹기종기 모여서 팔기 시작했습니다. In order to survive during the famine, people brought out everything they could sell, uh, they could sell from their houses, such as household, uh, household items, clothes, spoons and chopsticks sometimes, to exchange with a handful of corn, and they gathered in, a, gathered in an empty lot near the street. 이렇게 자연스럽게 형성된 장마당에서 유치원에 가야 할 여섯 살의 어린이마저 산에서 나뭇가지들을 주워 나뭇단을 만들어 만들고 나와서 사달라고 애원해야 했습니다. 장마당, the market in North Korea was formed spontaneously by the people, and it was not rare to see a six-year-old begging on the on the street to sell a bunch of firewood which he gathered from the mountain. 하지만 북한 당국은 썩어빠진 자본주의를 뿌리 뽑고 
주민들이 사회주의 정신을 각성해야 한다면서 장마당이 펼쳐진 장소에 안전원들을 투입해 대대적인 단속을 벌였습니다. However, the regime often ordered the uh, people's security officers to raid the market, saying we should root out corrupted capitalism and people should be awakened their sociality ideology. 사람들은 생존을 위해 팔던 물건들을 들고 안전원들을 피해 도망다녀야 했습니다. As soon as the, the officers showed up, people gathered everything they brought to sell in the market and ran away. 이렇게 도망다니는 모습에서 장마당은 메뚜기 장이라도 메뚜기 장이라고도 불렸습니다. This is why the market was called grasshopper market as merchants ran away from the raid like grasshoppers. 대대적인 단속에도 불구하고 메뚜기 장은 점점 활성화되었고 1999년에 들어서면서 장마당을 막을 수 없었던 안전부는 장마당을 허락하고 사람들이 장마당 안에서 자리를 잡고 물건들을 팔수 있게 했습니다. In the end, even a large-scale crackdown could not stop grasshopper markets from spreading out and uh, spreading out all around the country. And from 1999, the People's Security Department allowed people to have a designated place to sell products in the market. 대신 자리세를 받았지만 그래도 일단 허락된 장사를 하면서 시장이 활성화되기 시작하였습니다. They collected so-called space tax instead, a sort of a rent for a vendor space, but from then on, the market started to flourish. 당시 제 친구 중에는 부모들이 먼 친척 집에 쌀을 구하러 갔다가 사고로 죽고 동생하고 둘만 남은 고아가 있었습니다. I had a friend back then who was orphaned when her parents died out of accident while visiting their relatives to get some rice. 그 친구는 자신과 어린 동생의 생계를 위해 장사를 시작하였지만 사실 미혼의 여성들은 허락된 장마당에서도 장사를 할수 없다는 당의 방침이 있었습니다. In order to support herself and her young sibling, she started to run a business. But back then, the rule was a single woman could not participate in any activities in the market. 그 친구는 매일같이 안전원의 눈을 피해 쫓겨다녔으며 장사를 했지만 단속에 걸리면 팔던 물건들을 모두 압수당하여야 했고 얼마 안 되는 번점마저 일컫했습니다. Inevitably, she had to run, wander around to escape from the raid and at the same time sell the products. But the ones stopped by the authorities, they confiscated everything she was selling and sometimes took her money. 그 친구는 어쩔 수 없이 마음에도 없는 결혼을 한 후에야 장마당에 앉아 장사를 할수 있었습니다. Living with no choice, she had to get married just to have her own legitimate vendor space in the market. 북한에서 유치원 교사를 했던 저도 토요일과 일요일을 이용하여 장사를 했습니다. While working as a teacher during the weekdays and in the weekend, I also went out to the market. 청진에 있는 대형 도매 시장인 수남 시장에서 자파류를 도매 가격으로 구매한 다음 조금의 이윤을 붙여 무산장마당의 장사꾼들에게 판매하는 것이었습니다. What I did was to buy products from Sunan Market, which is a wholesale market in Chongjin, and sell them back to the vendors in Musan and raise a little bit of profit in between. 하지만 이런 식의 장사는 이윤은 얼마 없고 밑돈도 많이 들었습니다. However, the return was not good compared to what I had to invest. 
그래서 선택한 것이 돈을 많이 버는 위험한 장사였습니다. So I turned my eyes to a more risky but high yielding business. 저는 디젤류를 팔기 시작했습니다. I started to deal, uh, deal diesel oil. 무산 지역 강산을 운영하기 위해 김정일이 보내준 디젤류를 사람들은 단속을 피해 몰래 빼내 팔았습니다. There was a huge coal mine in Musan which required diesel oil to operate and people often smuggled the diesel oil out to sell in the market. 김정일이 준 것이기 때문에 걸리면 사형에 처하기도 하는 위험한 장사였지만 이윤이 많이 남았기에 어떤 사람들은 목숨을 걸기도 하였습니다. It was a very risky business so to steal diesel oil, which was called the present from Kim Jong-il, a great general Kim Jong-il, and those who were caught smuggling the oil were executed. But it was worth to risk their lives because the return was so profitable. 저도 못 모르고 디젤류 장사를 시작했고 돈을 많이 벌었습니다. I didn't really think about the possible danger that it might cause, but was just attracted by the high yielding and started to sell diesel oil. 하지만 몇달뒤 디젤, 디젤류를 팔다가 들킨 주민이 공개 채용을 당하면서 디젤, 디젤류 장사는 주춤하게 되었습니다. However, a couple of months later, one of the merchants who was charged for stealing diesel oil and publicly executed, which made other merchants to stop their businesses all of a sudden. 김정일의 선물을 팔았다는 이유로 사형을 당하는 것이 바로 북한 주민들의 현실입니다. It was a brutal reality for the people of North Korea that people could be publicly executed only because they sold so-called the presents from Kim Jong-il. 1996년과 97년도 한경북도 청진시에서 담배 장사를 하면서 하루를 벌어서 하루를 먹고 사는 생활을 했습니다. Between 1996 and 1997, I lived from hand to mouth as a street vendor selling cigarettes uh, on the streets of Chongjin. I purchased packs of cigarettes but I cannot do any kind of businesses or activities to raise private profit back then. Police often went out to crack down and if caught, they confiscated everything and never returned them. So I sometimes had to go back home empty-handed. 경찰들 눈을 피해 돌아다니면서 장사를 할 수밖에 없는 상황이었습니다. I wandered every corner of the streets to find customers and escape from the raids. 지정된 장마당 안에서 자리 자리세를 자리를 사서 장사를 해야 했, 했는데 저는 장마당 자리세를 낼 상황이 아니어서 형편이 못되고 하여 그렇게 못하고 항상 역전을 돌아다니면서 담배를 팔아서 하루하루 살았습니다. Everyone who wanted to open their vendors in the market should pay, uh, pay for their spaces, which I couldn't afford. So the only choice left for me was to roam around the station and find customers who wanted to buy cigarettes. Even in late 1990s, North Korea was becoming a capital society where only those who had money could survive. 특별히 강조하고 싶은 것은 북한이 장마당에서 남성보다 여성들이 더 활성화되어 있다는 사실입니다. I want to especially emphasize that it was a women that played a crucial role to make the market flourish. 
부녀자들은 아침 일찍 장마당에 나가서 다른 사람들에게서 쌀과 음식들을 받은 다음 그 물건을 팔아서 하루하루를 살아가곤 합니다. North Korean women went to the market in the morning, bought rice and food, uh, rice and food from the wholesalers, and sold them to the customers so that they can could support their families. 다만 마음 놓고 팔수 없는 현실입니다. But they struggle all the time. 경찰들이 순찰을 하면서 물건들을 해소하고 심지어는 물건을 팔아서 적은 먹은 돈마저 빼앗아 가버리기 때문입니다. The police raided the market, confiscated products, and sometimes took the money they raised. 물건을 팔으면서도 항상 경찰 눈을 피해야 하는. We have to shun away from the police in order to run our businesses. 팔던 물건과 돈을 돈 돈을 빼앗기면 빼앗기는 날이면 집안이 굶을 수밖에 없는 사실입니다. Oh, the whole family's day survival was upon our woman's shoulders. 이런 이런 상황에 적응하기 위해 북한 여성들은 진짜 억세고 생활력이 강해져야 할 수밖에 없는 현실이었습니다. Over time, North Korean women became stronger and more determined to overcome any challenges. 다만 경찰들에게 뇌물을 바치고 장사하는 것이 유행이 되는 정도였습니다. It became normal to pay bribes to the police and continue their businesses. 하지만 형편이 어려우면 바칠 뇌물은 없어서 장마당에서 물건을 빼앗기고 수입도 없이 하루하루 굶으며 살아가야 합니다. But those who cannot afford or could not afford, pay, uh, afford to pay bribes, the life was continuous struggle without, uh, with authorities as well as hunger. 또 워낙 도둑들이 많다 보니 물건을 팔다가 도둑질을 당하기도 합니다. On top of that, there were so many uh, petty thieves who stole things from us. 하루하루 생활하는 것이 참 어렵습니다. Every day was a struggle. 마음 놓고 안전하게 장사하는 군아리를 소망합니다. My only wish back then was someday I could open my own vendor and run my business without worrying about anything. Hello, my name is Kim Ji-young and I became a South Korean citizen in July 2013. 70년대, 80년대 시장에서 팔던 학습장이고요. So as you can see, we made some display of the products that actually sold as sold in the market right now. And towards your left, actually, you're gonna towards your right, you can see the notes that was actually sold in the North Korea during 70s and 80s. 그에 비해 좀 좋아 보이는 이 옆에 물건들이 지금 현재 북한에서 이제 시장 경제가 만들어낸. And to your left, you have you can see more of a fancier products which is sold sold right now in the in the market of North Korea. 사실 저도 이 물건들을 최근에 보고 깜짝 놀랐습니다. I was actually surprised how developed and sophisticated these products are right now. 저는 이제 북한에서 살때 계급적 토대가 좋아서 유치원 시절부터 고등 중학교까지 당의 보살피 속에서 my family were elites in North Korea, and I was beloved by everyone around me from the young age. 이렇게 김부자 교육을 제대로 받은 저는 김부자를 위해서 목숨도 바치겠다는 각오를 하고 있었습니다. Because of my background in education, I consider myself very loyal and patriotic to the regime. I often said I could sacrifice myself for our dear leader. 이러던 저희 정신 상태의 변화를 가져온 것이 바로 300만이 굶어 죽은 북한의 고난의 행군이었습니다. 
However, so-called Ayurveda March, which, March, which uh, where three million uh, people uh, died of uh, died of starvation, fundamentally changed my identity as a devoted uh, follower of the regime. Ayurveda's March brought the awakening of the capitalist thinking to North Korean people. 우선 국민들의 정신 상태의 변화인데요. First and foremost, uh, it changed the minds of the North Korean people. 그러니까 영원한 태양 또 신으로 알고 있던 김일성이 죽음은 그들도 인간이구나. 언젠가는 김정일도 죽겠구나 이런 생각을 하게 되었습니다. The death of Kim Il Sung reminded us that he was not an eternal son or god, but just a mere human, just like just, just like any other people. And his son Kim Jong Il would also die someday. 94년부터 북한은 경제적인 변화로 고난의 행군이 시작되었습니다. Just March followed about by the death of Kim Il Sung in 1994. Now I think that the reason why so many people died was because the market economy was in recession. 70년대, 80년대 북한은 시장 경, 사회주의 계획 경제와 배급제로 운영이 되다 보니 농토산물 시장 밖에는 없었습니다. North Korean economy was based on a planned socialist economy and public as well as a public distribution system. So during 1970s and 80s, the market existed only in a limited scale, named as a local agricultural market. 시장에서는 할머니들이 텃밭에서 키운 채소를 팔기도 하였고, 또 할아버지들은 텃밭에서 키운 담배를 말려서 파는 정도였습니다. There, the senior citizens sold vegetables they grew in their gardens. And some older gentlemen sold dried tobacco leaves there. 즉 시장에는 벌거리가 없는 공업품도 잡화도 없는 그냥 아무 벌거리 없는 곳이었습니다. Before the Arjus March, we can say that the market was just another small-scale farmers market without any manufactured goods. 그래도 북한에서 95년도 권한의 행군이 시작되면서 사람들은 시장의 가치를 알아갔고 또 주변에는 권한의 행군으로 굶어 죽는 가족과 또 죽을 먹는 집들이 늘어나고. When the Arjus March started with the collapse of the public distribution system in 1995, people started to realize the value of the market. People started to have their families died, so they there so many people are starving, and some of them started to sell alcohol and tofu they made in their home. 여성들이 음식을 집에서 만들어 시장 가까운 곳에서 팔기 시작을 했고 이제 그 시장을 중심으로 시장이 활성화되었습니다. A primitive form of market started to appear near a train station where women sold homemade foods on the street. 당시 시장이라고 불리는 것이 아니라 큰 공터에서 가족을 먹여 살리기 위한 여성들이 나와서 하루 식량을 바꿔가는 물물 교환의 장소이기도 했습니다. It was not called as a market yet, but more of a barter place where women gathered in a big lot in a neighborhood and exchanged whatever they could find from their houses with food for the day. 처음에는 돈이 될수 있는 집에 물건을 내다 팔았고 또 이들이 기차를 타고 바닷가에 가서 싼 물고기를 구매해서 상간지대에서 비싸게 팔면서 오직 가정의 목걸이를 위해서 시작한 장사였습니다. At first, they took anything valuable from their home and sold it in the market, and then later they expanded their businesses to travel to the port via train to buy fishes. Which they could sold, they could sell in their local markets in the mountainous area in higher prices. It was started and driven solely by women's determination to get food for their families. 
또한 국경지대에서는 침척 방문을 부실로 한 이제 보따리 상인들이 늘어나서 시장에서는 그 물건을 도매해서 파는 장사꾼들이 생겨났습니다. Uh, especially in the border area, people started to seek the opportunity to cross the border uh, of making an excuse to visit their relatives in China and came back with Chinese goods and quickly expanded to a wholesale uh, businesses where uh, merchants, uh, merchants uh, purchased Chinese goods from, the, uh, goods from and sold them in the local markets. 이때부터 북한 시장에는 없는 것이 없이 물건을 팔기 시작했고 또 시, 자본주의 시장 경제가 돌아가기 시작했습니다. Since then, the, uh, the capitalism had sprouted and bloomed in pri by uh, private citizens, and one could find basically everything in the market. 국경에서부터 들어오는 중국 물품을 또 나르는 운송 장사꾼들이 늘어났는데요. 이들은 갈 때는 중국 물건을 배낭에 짓고 갔고 또 돌아올 때는 그 고장의 특산물인 말린 오징어, 해삼, 생북 같은 것을 가지고 들어왔습니다. As the commodities were imported from China, some people started to uh, uh, started the transportation uh, businesses uh, to buy products from the wholesaler and carry them to the local markets. They deliver Chinese goods from uh, to the local merchants, and on their way back, they purchase local products such as dry squid, uh, sea cucumbers, and abalones, and which they can diversify the kinds of products uh, uh, sold in the markets. 이런 북한의 변화는 저희 정신 상태를 이제 놀라게 했는데요. All these changes actually astonished me. 죽도 없이 못 먹던 동네 친구네 집에서 엄마가 장사를 시작하고 오빠가 밀수를 시작하자 그 집안의 생활이 향상이 됐습니다. Uh, one of my friends in, in my hometown uh, who hadn't had anything, uh, who hadn't had anything to eat before, looked so differently years later because her mother ran her own business in the market. Her older brother was participating in smuggling uh, businesses. 처음 가족을 먹여 살리려고 시작한 엄마들의 엄마들의 장사로 하여 엄마들은 돈의 이로움을 알고 또 욕구가 생겨났고 또그 돈이 돈을 낳는다는 정신도 배워갔습니다. Women in the market who were forced to start their businesses only to support their families at first now start to realize the benefit of making money in the market and learn that the more money they, they, they have, the more revenue they could raise. 당시 시장에서 진행되고 있는 장사는 불법이었기 때문에. 예, 큰 경찰들은 장사꾼들을 잡아갔고 사회주의 잣대로 이제 사람들을 판단하기도 했습니다. Back then, the market activities were strictly banned by the regime and considered as a serious crime. So prosecutors launched special investigation and arrested business people in the markets. 하지만 이제 경찰도 검찰도 먹고 살아야 하는 땅에서 서로가 윈윈하기 시작했고 점점 북한 사회는 비리와 숙청을 눈 감아주는 범죄의 나라로 변해갔습니다. However, in a dire situation where policemen as well as the prosecutors also looking for a way to make their living, they found a way to, uh, for both sides mutually benefited, and soon after the corruption prevailed in, on, in North Korean society. The main reason that the regime could not stop the market was because the authorities who supposedly controlled the market were equally starving. 그들도 먹고 살기 위해 돈을 받고 물건을 받고 눈을 감아줬습니다. In order to make their living and survive, uh, they took the bribes offered in the form of products and let it happen. 현재 북한에는 어, 소비재 시장, 생산재 시장, 금융 시장, 노동 시장, 주택 시장이 형성되어 있습니다. Uh, currently, you could find virtually all, all kinds of markets in North Korea: consumer goods market, production goods market, financial market, labor market, and housing market. 
그러니까 이 모든 것이 국가가 허용한 것은 아니고 어, 은근슬쩍 눈감아 준 것이라고 말할 수 있습니다. Of course, North Korean region never officially, officially allowed these markets to happen, but over, only overlooked their existence. 사회주의 계획 경제가 망가진 북한 정부에서 어쩔 수 없이 허용한 자본주의 산물이기도 합니다. It is an outcome of a collapsed a planned socialist economy and reluctant relaxation of the control towards capitalism. 국가 소유의 집에서 살던 사람들이 돈을 받고 국가 몰래 집을 팔고 어, 그런 행동들이 시작되면서 북한에는 주택 시장이 지금은 부동산 투기라든가 또 부동산 중개업 또 숙박 시설 운영하는 장사로 변형이 됐습니다. The renters living in a state-owned houses secretly trade the, uh, trade the li- uh, rights of their houses with money, uh, which led to the emergence of the housing market. And now it expanded into a full aspect of uh, real estate businesses, where speculators and realtors invest in the housing market, and, and when others run a, a common, a, a accommodation with their own houses. 또한 생산재 시장은 중국에서 넘어오는 수많은 원단들로 해서 시작이 되었는데요. The production goods market first started with the Chinese imported textiles. 주민들은 돈이 생기면서 옷과 커튼이 필요했고 또 디자이너들은 그 원단을 미싱하는 여자들을 어, 시켜서 원단을 만들고 그것을 이제 신발을 만들고 해서 생산재 시장이 확장이 되었습니다. As people started to accumulate wealth from the markets, they desired to dress up and decorate their houses with a good quality fabric. So women, could, so women who could use sewing machines started to get orders from the designers and make clothes, shoes, and curtains for homes, which later induced a larger demand for textiles and a production goods market. 2002년 7월 1일 경제 조치 이후 북한에서 이제 시장이 생겨났는데요. 시장 관리소가 생겨나고 시장 안에서 장사꾼들에게 장세를 받기 시작했습니다. After the regime announced the economic reform in July 2002, they legalized uh, uh, markets uh, and the regime attempted to control, uh, control them. Market management offices were established uh, to collect the place tax from the merchants. 아무것도 아니라고 생각하던 시장이 그 운영 이제는 북한 경제의 80%를 담당할 만큼 확산이 되어 있습니다. It was just a small movement at first, but now some of the statistics say that income from the place tax comprises 80% of total revenue for North Korean regime. 지방에 한두 개 있던 시장이 지금 공식적으로는 500개 정도이고 메뚜기 시장까지 포함해서 1,000개 정도가 생겨났다고 합니다. Now there are more than 500 legalized markets in North Korea, including unofficial and temporary markets, which which are often called grasshopper markets. The number exceeds ten exceeds a thousand. 처음에 보따리를 짊어지고 장사를 시작하던 사람들이 이제는 앉아서 이제 물건을 하물차로 보내고 짐을 나르는 일꾼들을 고용하기도 합니다. The scale of business has also drastically increased that the merchants who have peddled around the villages now hire trucks and people to deliver products. 국가의 운송 수단을 믿을 수 없던 개인들은 이제는 경쟁자보다 물건을 더욱 빨리 확산시키기 위해 자체로 하물을 이제 운송하기 시작했고 그들이 만들어낸 버리 버스와 택시들은 물건을 날라주고 돈을 벌기 시작합니다. Individual business people who hardly trusted state-run transportation system started to start their own logistics industry because industry business to deliver goods faster than their competitors, and now buses and taxis are often used to deliver the goods. 
중국 친척의 물건을 도매로 팔아주던 장사꾼들은 이제 물주가 되어 있고 이들을 중심으로 북한에는 금융시장이 생겨났습니다. The wholesalers who traded the products from their relatives in China now became 물주, which means the master of products, and they created the financial market. 아, 북한에서 물건을 팔고 중국으로 돌아가려면 중국 돈으로 한전을 해야 돼서 개인들이 시장 주변에서 한전을 시작했고 이게 이 사람들이 북한의 금융 재벌로 성장했습니다. While North Korean wholesalers were traveling back and forth to China, they needed to exchange a currency, which led to the emergence of the private money exchangers in the markets, and these exchanges are financial conglomerates in North Korea right now. 그들이 앉은 자리에서 돈을 바꿔주면서 개인들이 운영하는 만들어낸 신용 사회가 형성이 되었습니다. The credit-based system is blooming in North Korea, where the currency is exchanged on site. 이런 시대에 저는 고등학교를 졸업했고 북한의 최고 대학 김일성 대학에 입학을 했습니다. In the middle of such transformation, I graduated high school and was accepted to Kim Il Sung University, the most prestigious university in North Korea. 입학하여 저는 학급의 학생들을 보면서 돈의 용도와 권력에 대한 이제 그 사심을 가지게 되었습니다. While looking at my classmates, I started to realize how powerful the money and the power could be. 돈이 사람을 만들고 돈이 직업을 만들었습니다. Then I learned that money makes person, money makes people, and money creates jobs and position. 간부의 자식들이 90%인 저희 대학에는 배고픔을 아는 사람도 없었고 죽을 먹어본 사람도 없었고 또 더욱이 아픈 것은 그들에게 굶어가는 북한 주민은 아무런 의미도 없다는 것입니다. 90% of my, uh, the students were the children of Workers' Party officials, and no one seemed to know what famine was, and no one seems to understand and care that there are people die of, uh, die of starvation in the par other parts of the country. 실망감을 안고 방학에 내려왔더니 저에겐 또한 번의 충격이 가해졌는데요. When I came back from home, I from, uh, came back to my hometown for a summer vacation, I encountered more shocking reality. 국경이었던 저희 고향의 시장이 활성화되고. 또 장사를 이미 하던 사람들은 지금 돈주가 되었고 물주가 되어 있었습니다. In my hometown by the border, the market flourished and those early entrepreneurs became so-called 돈주, the money masters, and sometimes 물주, the master of products. 어, 토대가 나쁘다고 대학도 못 갔던 저희 친구는 배고파서 굶어 죽은 게 아니라 장사를 시작해서 아파트를 구매하고 화려하게 살고 있고 얼굴에는 기름기가 자르르 돌았습니다. I had a friend who was rejected from a college because of her bad family background, and now she was living in a luxurious apartment, build, uh, a luxurious apartment building, and looked better than anyone else uh, as she, her smuggling business took off. 드디어 저는 20년의 세뇌에서 빠져나와 장사를 시작하게 되었습니다. Finally, broke out of 20-year-long brainwash from the regime about capitalism and market, I could see the value of market economy. 대학을 졸업하고 바로 개인 식당을 했는데요. 이제 인간이 살면서 끝까지 먹어야 되는 거기 때문에 음식은 장사의 기본 품목이기도 했습니다. Right after graduation, I opened my my first own restaurant. I thought since people cannot live without food, I thought I so I saw the opportunity in restaurant businesses. 이때를 맞춰 또 이제 국가의 식당의 사장들은 국가 건물을 가지고 돈을 벌 방법을 생각해냈습니다. In order to utilize this blooming of the market, the managers of the state-owned restaurants came up with an idea to make extra profit using the building they were located. 건물의 일부를 투자자에게 빌려주는 것인데요. 저는 당시 국가 식당의 2층 건물을 
5천 달러를 투자를 하고 매달 150불씩 월세를 내겠다는 계약을 하고 이제 식당을 시작을 했습니다. They started to rent a part of the space in the building to those who could invest. So I rented a place at the second floor of two-story building, restaurant building, uh, paying 5,000 US dollars to the manager, uh, and monthly rent was $150 US dollars. 식당의 2층 공간은 확실하게 제 공간이었지만 국가에 보고된 내용에 따르면 저와 저희 직원들은 그 식당의 종업원이었습니다. Even though I was a private business owner and a contractor renting the whole uh, space in the second floor, according to what was reported to the regime, myself and uh, all of my employees were just another service of the state-run restaurant. 주방에 요리사 두 명, 또 홀에 세 명을 데리고 시작한 장사가 어, 한 번에 200명 정도의 식탁이 있었는데요. 이게 바로 24살 김일서 종합대학을 졸업한 어, 저희 장사의 <웃음> 터전이기도 했습니다. I hired two cooks and three servers, and the restaurant that, I, the, uh, restaurant that could accommodate 200 people was my first business that I opened at the age of 24, uh, right after graduating from uh, Kim Il-sung University. Many of my classmates from the university mocked me for opening up a business rather than return the favor to the regime for education they provided. 하지만 아가씨들이 경영한 식당은 너무 잘 되었고 그 매출의 50%가 마진이었습니다. 하루에 평균 150달러를 벌었습니다. Uh, nevertheless, the business took off and raised about 150 US dollars as, as a daily net income in average, which is about, which is about 50% of the total revenue. 직원의 월급은 사장이 제가 줬는데요. 주방 요리사는 하루에 2달러, 접대원은 1달, 1달러를 줬습니다. Uh, the daily wage for the cook was uh, $2 and $1 for a server, uh, which I paid from the revenue. 당시 1달러, 1달러면 북한 돈으로 6,000원이었고요. 1달러면 쌀 2kg였습니다. Back then, the exchange rate between US dollar and uh, North Korean won was 1 to 6,000. 6, uh, one dollar, you could, with one dollar, you could buy two kilograms of rice. 국가에서 받는 한달 월급이 고작 1,800 원이었던 직원들은 김정일보다 저를 더 좋아했습니다. Ordinary server in, rest, uh, in other restaurant earned about 1,800 North Korean won monthly from the regime. So I could say that my employees loved me, loved me more than Kim Jong-il. <laughs> 왜냐하면 주방 직원은 저에게서 김 정일이 주는 월급보다 200배를 더 받아갔습니다. A cook was paid 200 times more than what we could learn by working at a state-run restaurant. 이렇게 2002년 7월 독재자가 허용한 북한의 시장 경제는 지금은 더 이상 돌이킬 수 없는 이제 자본주의에 대한 욕심이고 환상으로 자리 잡았습니다. The market economy in North Korea, which uh, even made the dictator allow the system to grow since 2002, is now making North Korean people fantasize about capitalism. North Korean regime is still repeating the old uh, propaganda and urging people to live the, in revolutionist spirit for self-survival uh, by tightening their belts. 하지만 북한 주민의 정신은 이제는 더 이상 독재자가 가질 수 없는 재산이 되었습니다. However, the minds of North Korean people no longer, no longer belong to the dictator. 그들을 믿고 살아야겠다는 북한 주민은 단한 명도 없을 것입니다. Uh, not, not, I think that there's no one in North Korea who truly believe, that, uh, believe and trust that, uh, what the regime says. 사람들은 국가의 통제 속에서 자본주의를 배웠고 
또 이제 자본주의 정신을 정신으로 삶을 준비하고 또 대비하면서 살아갑니다. Even under strict control of the regime, North Koreans learned the capitalism, and now they are, are the pioneers of their own fate, armed with a capitalist mindset. 2009년 화폐 개혁으로 뒤통수를 맞은 주민들은 더 이상 국내 화폐를 어, 조축하지도 않습니다. The regime attempted to control the market through the currency devaluation in 2009, which backfired, and now no one trusts the banks and keep their money in their bank account. 북한 독재는 달라지지 않았지만 주민들은 이제 더 이상 국가를 믿고 굶어 죽지 않을 것입니다. The tyranny of the North Korean regime is still the same. However, North Korean people will not remain the same to trust their leader and starve to death. 북한의 대북 제재가 강화되면 김정은은 국민들이 먹고 살기 힘들다고 합니다. Kimjong-un often claims that the sanction against North Korea would have a harmful, harm, harmful effect on North Korean people. 하지만 천만의 말씀인데요. 이제 대북 제재가 강해질수록 어려워지는 것은 김정은과 이설주 그 측근들 뿐입니다. But I can surely tell you that this is a complete lie. The only people suffer from the sanction is Kim Jong-un, Lee Seol-ju, and elites around them, not ordinary citizens of North Korea. 북한에 대한 햇볕 정책은 김정은이 돈주머니를 늘려주기만 합니다. Engagement strategy towards North Korea only serves Kim Jong-un's interest. 이것은 북한의 그 수많은 물자를 그냥 간부들만 먹었고 국민들한테 전달되지 않았던 그 물자를 간부에 달러서 먹었던 저희 증, 증언이기도 합니다. The uh, International Committee sent a, a huge, a countless amount of uh, humanitarian aid to North Korea, which never made to North Korean people, but diverted by the authorities. This I could surely tell you from my own experience as a daughter of a Workers' Party officials. 이렇게 북한의 시장 경제 발전은 자식과 남편을 굶겨 죽이지 않으려고 어, 발벗고 나선 여성들에 의해서 발전돼 왔습니다. The transformation of North Korean society to a capital system started from the determined women who strive to support their children and husbands. 지금 북한 지금도 북한 시장은 어, 중국 물품이 들어오고 남한 드라마가 들어오면서 돈이라면 무엇이도 하, 무엇도 할수 있는 밀수꾼들과 또그 북한 공무원들의 협조로 발전하고 있는 매일도 매일 매일 진행이 되는 삶의 전투장입니다. And it is growing. Uh, it is growing as a center of everyday struggle, struggle of life, where the smugglers would sell whatever they could sell, uh, earn money from, whether it's Chinese goods or uh, South Korean drama series. And the corrupt officials would protect the merchants to get bribe in, in return. Thank you. Thank you. We have time for some questions, but I want to start. I know is Ambassador King, Bob King here. I, I just, Ambassador Bob King was the chief of staff for Tom Lantos when the North Korea Human Rights Act passed in 2004. Um, I was just going to uh, point out that at that time in 2004 and even up until today, there's been a very strong unified opinion about North Korea human rights. Uh, in the Congress. And one of the things that is very important, I, I, I want to ask this first question um, about sanctions, because she brought up sanctions. And one of the things when they passed the Sanctions Act, as most of you know, the, the sanctions legislation has just been overwhelmingly passed by the Congress. But there's, it was very carefully crafted just to target the Kim regime and the elites and not the people of North Korea. So the question I have, I just want to explore that a little bit more. 
of how, if the markets are a really good thing, have, did they think that sanctions, what's their opinion on sanctions? Have they negatively impacted the market? And if they've negatively impacted the market, which is a good thing, do they think there should be an easing of sanctions to, to help the average citizens? And I'd like to ask all three of them, if they, anyone who wanted to answer that question, what their opinions are. And then we'll open up the floor to questions. 세부께 여쭤보고 싶은 것은 이제 국회에서 미국 국회에서는 어, 대북 제재에 대해서 굉장히 한 목소리로 이것들을 지원을 하고 있고 어, 어, 계속 어, 법안을 통과시키고 있는데요. 어, 대북 제재가 사실은 미국 국회에서 만들어질 때 어, 북한의 주민들이 아니라 북한 정권만을 이렇게 타겟으로 삼을 수 있도록 굉장히 잘 만들어진 법안으로 만들 수 있도록 노력을 많이 했거든요. 그래서 세분 생각에는 제재 북한 제재가 북한 주민들에게 어떤 영향을 어, 북한 주민들과 또 시장에 어떤 영향을 끼치고 있다고 생각하시는지 여쭤보고 싶습니다. 어, 일단 저는 이번 하노이 북미 회담에서 이제 트럼프 대통령의 의지를 정확히 알아서 이제 김정은 내게 이제 빨려 들어가지 않는 데 대해서 감사의 말씀을 드리고 싶습니다. First of all, I want to uh, give my appreciation to President Trump, who backed out uh, from the Hanoi summit, showing that his determination not to compromise with this regime. 물론 제재가 계속되는 경우에 만약에 주민들이 어, 힘들 수도 있고요. 무역으로 들어오는 장사 물건이 안 돌아서 시장의 물건이 메말라질 수도 있습니다. Uh, you might, uh, we could uh, say that uh, when the sanctions continued, uh, sanctions conti continued, then people might get suffer because there's not many goods available in the, in the market because the trade is all blocked. 하지만 uh, 국민들은 사실 북한 주민들은 쌀이 없으면 죽을 먹는다는 uh, 이치를 알지만 간부들은 쌀이 없으면 무조건 쌀이 필요합니다. Uh, but the, we, we should uh, distinct, uh, there is a stark distinction between the, uh, what ordinary people think and then what officials think. If the North Korean ordinary citizen, they don't have anything to eat, then they'll figure out how to survive through the market and their experience. But officials who rely their, self, their lives solely on the regime, they're going to have a hard time. Uh, 밀수꾼들이나 또 장사꾼들을 통해서 국가에서 하지 말라는 불법을 허용할 수 있다는 것입니다. So it might be uh, increasing the sanction or keeping the sanction as a level might give more opportunities to the ordinary people because since uh, the authorities are starving, they're going to figure out how to manage their living by allowing and uh, receiving these bribes from the merchants and allowing the markets to continue to happen and continue to flourish. 한국말에 그 진료는 의사에게 약은 약사에게 이런 말이 있더라고요. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I came to South Korea, I learned this phrase saying that if you want, if you want to uh, be diagnosed, then you should go see the doctor. If you want to pre uh, uh, prescribe the medicine, you should go to the pharmacy. 북한에 대한 그 어떤 제재를 하든 어, 비핵화를 하든 북한에서 30년 이상을 살았고 북한에서 삶을 바꿨던 우리들이 so in that sense, actually, we are who lived in North Korea more than 30 years. We are the experts in terms of a North Korean uh, issue and North Korean policy. 북한을 알려면 북한을 알았던 북한을 봤던 저희들이 북한을 볼수 있는 창고라고 생각합니다. And we are the windows that you can look through, look in, and uh, learn about what North Korean society is. 그래서 여기 계시는 여러분들이 북한에 대해서 관심이 있거나. 
북한에 앞으로 제재가 필요한지 안 필요한지는 저희 창구들을 활용해서 더 북한의 주민들에게 접촉할 수 있는 저희들에게 힘과 용기를 주시면 감사할 것 같습니다. So I hope that I urge you to utilize North Korean factors to whether you want to know more about the impact of impact of sanction or you want to know reach out to North Korean North Koreans inside North Korea. We are here. We are uh, we are the windows for you to connect uh, you with uh, with North Korean people. Would they willing to add to that? ก็อีกสิ่งที่เขาท้อสิ่งที่เป็นสิ่งที่เขาท้อสิ่งที่เป็นสิ่งที่เขาท้อสิ่งที่เป็นสิ่งที่เขาท้อสิ่งที่เป
doing any kind of role in society. So and we always say that it's a light in the day because they're not necessarily the doesn't play any any role in there. 이렇게 남자들이 장사가 결국은 불법인데요. So all these market economies were actually illegal in North Korea. 아침에 장사짐을 와이프의 장사짐을 시장에 들어다 주고 저녁에 이 와이프의 장사짐을 들고 오는 것이 바로 북한에서 남자들이 할수 있는 장사에 도움이 되는 행동입니다. Because of that, men are uh, the, the only role that men can play is basically carrying the loads or like bags of a wife who is going out to the market to sell these things. And 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 night when they're coming back, they just bring bring that back uh, back home. That's the only the role that men can play in this market. 제가 말씀드린 이런 행동들이 북한의 진짜 그냥 회사원들이고요, 북한의 사법 검찰 간부들은 물론. 저희 만약 예를 들어서 아빠가 간부면 온 집안을 먹여 살릴 수 있게 능력 있는 남자들도 많습니다. So this is uh, more, mostly about like ordinary citizens who are in a more like a more um, ordinary citizens, not uh, uh, not about officials. Uh, authorities and officials and working in the party or uh, in uh, persecutors' office or government uh, institutions, they have ability to basically support their families. They're uh, they're they're getting distribu distributions from the government government regime. 북한에서 가장 잘 팔리는 물건은 made in Korea. 남한 드라마. 네. The most popular uh, product you asked, uh, which is sold in uh, in uh, market, is basically everything made in Korea, made in South Korea, whether it's a drama city or uh, anything like that. 이런 불법적인 물건들을 이제 밀수하는 남자들이 가끔 가져와서 그럴 때 남자가 도움이 되기도 합니다. Sometimes men are useful when they help like smuggling these products from China to North Korea. That's the only time that we find they're useful in market. <laughs> Did they want to comment? Another question. That was a great question. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Right back here. Hi, here is Tan Bisa, and I'm like Asan Academy Washington Fellow, and I'm currently working at Hassan Institute. Uh, as you've mentioned, that the North Korean women needed to be stronger. So I'd like to know the women rights inside North Korea. That is my first question. And the other is: Is there any correlation between the women rights in North, inside North Korea and then the high rate of women defectors? So, yeah. I, you know what I was gonna. Just, you can translate that, but the, one of the witnesses that we had wasn't able to speak, but one of the th points she was going to make is that the women have no rights in North Korea. Women are treated horribly in North Korea. And one of the witnesses, she was, she was ill, she wasn't able to testify, but she was going to make that point um, that I think she, their property, their they're just treated horribly. So, Mm -hmm. 
돈을 만지면서 여성들이 음, 자본주의를 알게 됐고 점점 이제 그 시야가 넓어지면서 갇혀있던 가정에서 그냥 그 아이를 키우고 남편의 뒷바라지만 하던 여성들이 밖에 나가서 돈을 벌기 시작하면서 가정에서 위치도 높아지면서 사회적 위치도 이제 좀 광범위하게 시야가 넓어지면서 여성들이 음 자본주의라는 세계를 맛보게 되었습니다. 그, 그 시작으로 이제 그 가까운 중국에서 물건들이 넘어오는 것을 만지고 팔고 그, 그 물건들을 팔면서 버는 돈으로 또 이제 가정을 이제 <웃음> 먹여 살리고 내 윤택하게 되고 하니까 여성들이 이제 탈북을 시도하면서 중국 가서 돈을 좀 벌어다가 좀더 많이 벌 거다 이런 환상을 가지게 되었고 그 시작으로 해서 탈북이 시작됐습니다. 탈북을 해서 중국에 가 보니까 이제 또 남한에 대한 이제 동경심이 더 커지게 커지게 되었고 시작은 탈 어, 탈북을 해서 중국에서 돈을 벌어 와야지 했었는데 어, 아예 탈 탈북을 이제 해서 남아로로 가겠다라는 생각을 하게 되었습니다. So there's a uh, just, uh, definitely change in the uh, in uh, change in terms of uh, status of women in North Korea with the with the bloom of the market. Um, as women start to become a breadwinner for the family, their status within the household has been increased, and then uh, the whole family members basically relying on their businesses. So that's how they, uh, their status has been changed in, in, within the, in the society itself. And the one thing they started to defect is that it's not just bec not because they defected not because they want to have more freedom. They want to, they start, start to defect because they knew, they knew that when you go to China, you're going to earn more money. So that was actually uh, the kind of capitalist thinking that you want to earn more money was the uh, drive force of North Korean women to defect to China. And then when they went to China, they start to learn more about South Korea. They start to know there's a window, there's a huge freedom there, and also when they're in their market, when their market, all they before the market system uh, flourished, all they knew was about their family, all they knew was the survival of family. But now they have more opportunity, have more power and more money. They feel they start their whole realm of their their point of view start to expand. And now they're in China. They saw South Korea and other countries. They feel like oh, this is a I, even though I crossed the border in order to seek the money, but now I want to spend my, uh, expand my, my own territory by going to uh, South Korea. That's why there's a, uh, a liberal correlation between women. Uh, majority of the, women, uh, the defectors are women. I know we're, uh, I, got, I just got the two minute warning. Um, but I want to make a, 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 just call a couple things to your attention. We have um, on our website, um, a presentation that was given at the UN Commission on the Status of Women in March. That's the testimonies of two North Korean women talking about what is the status for women in North Korea. Fascinating presentation. Um, but they basically talk, there's, there's no social protections for women at all. One of these women was uh, central political prison camp when she was 14, spent 28 years there. She tells her story. Uh, another woman um, also testified about what she went through. And I just want to call it to your attention because you're specifically asking about the, the, um, 
the, the status of women in North Korea, and the, the, it's an incredible presentation, but they have no human rights, and they have no protections. And the only thing that's helped them now is because they've become capitalists. So um, it was a great presentation. I want to just thank um, Sang-Jun, where are you? That was kind of, oh, there he is, I'm sorry. The, I got the lights in my eyes. Thank you so much. Uh, he helped organize this for CSIS, and I just wanted to acknowledge him. And also our translator, Kang Sa, <laughs> who did such a great job. Thank you. And we're so grateful for the uh, CSIS and Dr. Victor Cha for hosting this. North Korea Freedom Week is continuing all through this week. We will have testimonies going on, different programs, and you can, um, I've got a flyer here, but there's also, you can see it on our website, www.nkfreedom.org, to see all the events that are going on for North Korea Freedom Week. And if we could have another round of applause for our ladies. Uh, one one yes. more thing before we close. Um, there's a bag of candies you might see. That's from North Korea. So anyone who wants to try North Korea candies, feel free to come out. But we're selling them to help support the defectors. <laughs> you don't get Better than blue, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, if we could give a round of applause to our wonderful witnesses. Thank you. I could read a different